We are, we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and last week, we taught, or two weeks ago, David had been finally and, and completely kicked out of Saul's palace. And today, today he starts uh, in earnest being on the run. David is now a fugitive. He has gone from being the captain of the bodyguard. He's been gone from being one of the top officials in the nation of Israel, and he is now literally running for his life with no food, with no money, with no weapons, with nothing but the clothes on his back. He is completely desperate and alone and afraid. And in the midst of all that, we're going to see how much God uh, loves his people, his protection and provision for us, even in the midst of the wilderness that we live in. So, uh, it's another long reading today. I might actually sit myself for this. <laughs> uh, let's remain seated as we read through this, but let's give our attention and, and, and pay attention to God's inerrant word. This is First uh, Samuel chapter 21. And then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one's with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. And now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, well, I have no common bread on hand, but there is the holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go out on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? And so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Well, then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod, if you will, take that. Uh, if, you will, if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. And David rose then and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did not they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down on his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. 
And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. When David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I was reading a, an article yesterday that explained, it was trying to explain the difference between justice and mercy and grace. Maybe the difference between justice and mercy is easy enough to define, but the difference between mercy and grace, I thought, was interesting. This guy who wrote this article, he said, justice is, is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. There's a, there's a great scene from an awful movie that really illustrates what the difference is between justice and mercy and grace. I don't recommend you see the movie. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you the name of the movie, but I just remembered the scene when I was thinking about how to explain this. And it's a, it's a movie about, uh, these, uh, it's a movie about uh, these salesmen that are in this failing sales office, and the national office sends this high-profile this high salesman to come and motivate these people. And he does it in the way of a sales contest. And in this, this awful speech, this super disrespectful and abusive speech that he gives to the salesman, he says to them, here's the, he's all, you know that we've had it. We have a new sales contest this month. First prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Second prize is a set of steak knives. And third prize is you're fired. Now, this, how does this illustrate the difference between justice and mercy and grace? Because justice is this. Justice is either, uh, either you win and you get the Cadillac, or you lose and you get fired. That's strict justice. That's, and I love that, man. I, when I, you know, that reason I love that scene in the movie is because I just love that, that, that bravado, and there's something about our perverse nature that just loves the winner. Everybody loves a winner. You know, it's first... Second place is first loser. We have all kind of sayings that like pump up how much we love to win. Uh, and that, that bleeds into our religious life and our spiritual understanding all over the place. Mercy in that situation would be that uh, you lose, but you get to keep your job. And grace would be you lose but you get the Cadillac. Even more specifically to our purposes, grace would be you lose, the top salesman wins, he gets fired for you and gives you the Cadillac. That's really what a picture of grace is in the Bible when we're talking about grace. And most religions, most world religions are this mix of justice with a little bit of mercy because we love justice. We love about thinking about ourselves as the winner. Um, and so most religions are this mix of justice and mercy. You need to win. You need to win in your life, but God in mercy will give you a couple breaks along the way. 
But the problem is then you get into real life and you get into the real struggles of life and you realize pretty quickly, if you're honest, that you need a little, you need more than just a couple of breaks along the way. And that's where grace comes in. Christianity is totally different. Christianity is all about, it's all about grace. It's all about God giving us what we don't deserve out of his intense love for us. Not because of anything that we do or who we are, but just because he has chosen to love us. He gives us the Cadillac at great cost to himself. And really that's what this passage is all about. God's grace for his people. God uh, is grace for his people in his provision for us, his grace for us in his protection over us, and his grace in, in leading us through the wilderness of this evil age and into our eternal home. And so here's the big idea. The big idea about this passage is that God promises provision and protection for his people in the wilderness of the fallen world. So let's look at that one little part at a time. God promises to provide for his people. Have you ever been, ever been in an instance where you've been so afraid that, uh, that you willfully sinned and you knew it was wrong, you knew you sinned when you were doing it? Maybe it was you know, like a, a situation where you knew you were in trouble, uh, you had done something wrong, or you had done something and you were, you, were being, you were being asked to tell the truth, but you knew that if you said the truth that you'd get in way more trouble and you justified it and ended up lying about it anyways. Uh, I mean, in a certain sense, all of our sin is motivated by fear. But there are certain, sin, there are certain cases when we are so afraid, so afraid of losing something or so afraid of getting in trouble that it causes us to even sometimes willfully sin. And that's, what, that's what's happening with David in this passage. It's really, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty brutal. What happens here is David is, he's on the run, he's been forced to literally leave his palace, leave his home behind, leave everything, all of his friends, his wife, everything behind. He's got nothing but the clothes on his back and he is so afraid for his life. The only place he can think of to go is to where the temple is, which is the city called Nob, where the priests are. But he's also, he's afraid because Ahimelech, the, high, the priest, also happens to be the brother of Saul's chaplain. He doesn't know if he can trust him or not. He doesn't know where he stands. And so instead of telling him the truth, he tells a lie. He lies big time to him about what he's doing there and why he's there. And at the time, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. But then that, there's that scene where it, it, the, it, the action stops and the camera pans and closes in. And we see that there's one of Saul's servants, this man named Do- Doeg, who's a servant of Saul. And the camera pans back. We don't think it's that big a deal what David's just done, this lie to protect himself. But as we read forward, we see that this, the lie that he just told has compromised the priests because that man goes and tells Saul that they aided David, his enemy. And, in, and we're going to see next week what happens is Saul, in his anger, comes in and murders every one of those priests and all of their family members, men, women, children. It just wipes out their entire village. You know, the Bible doesn't stop here to give us a moral discourse 
about this. It's a narrative. It's fast-acting pace. It doesn't take the time to do that every time someone in the Old Testament sins in a big way. But it does, what it does is it just describes it in brutal living color and then shows the consequences of it. Uh, it's real sin. There's real consequences of it. It doesn't minimize it at all. It just shows what is really happening. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, here's what I want to point out at this beginning is, is there's more than just this instance. A couple, para, a couple chapters ago, when David was escaping uh, with, from uh, his own house from Saul's assassins, there's this passage that just kind of throws out this thing. It says, Michal, his wife, took an image and laid it on the bed as part of hiding David in, in making the, the assassins think that David was sleeping sick in bed. That image, that image was called a teraphim. It was usually a, uh, an image of another god or they were called household gods in other parts of the Bible. They were idols. They were graven images. This is, the thing is, this is David's house. David, the man after God's own heart. And what, here's what I'm getting at. What I'm trying to pull out is that we think, I think, we usually think about David in these, these big hero contexts and we say, David, the righteous man, except for that one random incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. But other than that, David's, David was this holy saint. But the reality is, there's all these clues all throughout the text that David was struggling and stumbling through life just like we do. And yet God still calls him righteous and godly and still calls him a man after his own heart. Because it's, his, it's not about David and himself. It's what David's faith is in. It's what David is looking to for his salvation. He is a man looking outside himself to the salvation of God. He is repentant and that is what makes him righteous and godly. And so I think it's so helpful for me to see that. When I'm stumbling through life, when I like catch myself going, man, I just lied on purpose just then. And it causes harm. To know that David was the same way and yet God was still caring for him and loving him through that. How do I know that? Look what happens. How is, what is God's response to David in this situation? Think about David comes in to Nob, to Ahimelech. He tells this awful lie that ends up, really, uh, it ends up in the loss of 300 innocent lives. Now think about, if this was you, think about in your own context something you did that was serious something that was really sinful and bad like that, how would you think, knowing what you just did, how would you tend to think, knee-jerk reaction, that God would respond to you in that? For real. I'm not talking like in your holy, oh, because God loves me, but what would you really think right after you just realized what you just did? You would think God is about to drop the hammer of justice. I've lost... I'm going to get fired. God is going to drop the hammer of punishment on me. But is that what happens in this story? Does God give him justice? Do the priests immediately arrest him and hand him over to Saul for execution? No. He does not get justice. Does he only get mercy? Do the priests just kick him out but not turn him over to Saul? No, he doesn't get just mercy. What he gets is grace. 
God gives him something that he doesn't deserve in the form of Ahimelech gives him the holy bread as sustenance to sustain him. Now I think, I think that this is deeper than we could possibly pull out in a 30-minute sermon. Everything that's happening here. Jesus himself calls attention to this story uh, to rebuke the Pharisees uh, and to tell them, to show them that mercy and grace are more vital to true religion than the minutiae of keeping the law. And it's in the context of the Messiah with his disciples and them being in need in the same way David is. I think we could probably plumb all kinds of amazing uh, visions of grace out of this. Out of this. But what we can say in the time that we have is this, that in the midst of David, this gross sin that causes so much trouble, um, God continues to provide for him in that. God is, because God loves David, because David, because God has committed himself to love David and to, to grow him and to protect him, God continues to love and protect him and provide for him in the midst through this. And that's what God does for us. I think there's big, there's a small lesson in this, there's a big lesson. First one, small lesson, and it's worth thinking about this just for a minute before we go on to the big lesson. Big, small lesson is this, and I, this, I'm going I'm to read you something from a commentator named Dale Ralph Davis, uh, wrote a great commentary on 1 Samuel, and he says, he says this, there, he says, there, there may well be a word in David's provision for the contemporary Christian. One may be under a heavy load, boxed in and pressed down under various vocational and emotional and spiritual and circumstantial pressures, but am I still eating every day? At least once. Doesn't God's small provision in the midst of my big problems tell me something? Doesn't it? I'm, I remember once being, I was on a long fast and I was working through this, and um, I remember the lunch truck came. It was a long time before I was a pastor. And I'd been, it was a long-term fast, and I, me- I remember seeing everybody just like pile onto the lunch truck and grab their food off it, and I was just stunned and shocked about everybody grabbed that food and started eating it without any of them, like really making any sort of indication that they had given God thanks for their food, because in the absence of food, it was so easy and clear to see how food was an it was an everyday indicator of God's blessing and mercy and grace upon my life. I mean, we can get so wrapped up into how we want these big things in life to go that we can totally forget about and take for granted and discount the fact that we're eat, that we eat every day is a sign of God's mercy and grace and protection and love for us. That he's sustaining us through the trials that we're engaged in. That he has providentially ordained for us to go through. So that's the small lesson. But the bigger, bigger lesson is, is really that what, this is what the priest gave David the holy bread. This was called the bread of the presence. They would every Sabbath, they would bake 12 loaves and put it uh, in front of, in, in the temple complex on the north side 
of the temple. And it was a constant reminder to God's people of God's provision of bread in the wilderness, which then translates in the New Testament. Jesus uses all that imagery. It's the pictures behind Jesus saying to everybody that I am the true bread of life. That just as physical bread, we eat it, it strengthens our bodies and it helps us to walk through uh, to, to, to move and to function, to be strong in, in our bodies. In the same way, Jesus is the spiritual bread from heaven who strengthens us spiritually and gives us the power spiritually to endure, to sustain, and to have grace, and to worship, and to live in the midst of this fallen world. And so this, the same author, he says this great phrase. He says, he says, the holy bread became his daily bread. The holy bread became his daily bread. Which is a picture for us of how Jesus, the bread of life, isn't just something we receive just at salvation. Uh, It's something that he is pouring out to us through his spirit on a daily basis. Because in the midst of our sin, we need his his, his, his provision not just in our physical needs, but in our spiritual needs. And he has committed himself to loving us and giving us what we don't deserve. That is grace. The daily bread of Jesus we receive every day. Second thing. The first thing God promises to provide for his people. Second thing is God promises to protect his people. So David here, we see David here, he is so afraid that he does something sinful, right? But sometimes, sometimes we get super afraid or we get uh, super desperate and we do something that's not necessarily sinful, but we do something that's just kind of stupid. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been like, felt like you were boxed in and you just did something that, that, that seemed like such a good idea. But the minute you did it, you realize, wow, that was a really, really bad idea. David does this too. That's the second thing David does. David goes into Nob. He sins against the priests of Nob. He runs from there. And the next thing he does is foolish. He goes, look what he does in uh, verse 10, 21.10. It said, David, he runs from Nob, from the city of the priests. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, Bible scholars, who can tell me whose hometown was the city of Gath? Goliath, (laughs) whom David had just killed (laughs) in the valley of Elah, whose sword... David is carrying on his side, and you're like, what are you thinking, man? What, what are you thinking is this? He was thinking, he was counting on the adage that my enemy's enemy is my friend, and thinking that he could go to the king of Achish uh, and find refuge, because now that he was the adversary of Saul, the king of Achish would hire him on to be a mercenary in his army, and he actually does that, chapter 27, 28, farther down the line. But right here, right now, (laughs) 
All they remember is the song, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, and there's about ten thousand military widows in the city of Gath that are not about to have David be hired as a military mercenary. And so what happens is he gets imprisoned. And they put him in jail as he awaits to see the king. And in the jail cell, that's when he realizes, wow, sounded like a good idea, but that was a really bad idea. Now, in the narrative, here's the amazing thing about this passage. In the narrative, it says that David's escape was really just he acted crazy. He just acted insane, scrawled a bunch of graffiti on the posts, uh, let spittle run down his beard, which was a big deal in ancient Near Eastern culture. Uh, and, and that made the king think that he was insane, so they kicked him out. They just kicked him out. But David comments on this time of his life in two psalms, Psalm uh, 56 and Psalm 34. The headers, he, a lot of the psalms have headers, and the headers of Psalm, header, header psalm 56 says, when the Philistines seized him in Gath, and this is David reflecting when he's in jail, and Psalm 34, this beautiful psalm, uh, it says, when David changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out, and he went away. This is David's commentary about what really went down, what really happened, how it was he escaped. Psalm 56 really talks about when he was in jail. He says, this I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I shall praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Saying that was his meditation as he was awaiting to come before the king and find out if they were going to execute him or not. He was just placing all of his trust in the Lord. But here's, the, here's this, is, this is what I want you to see. Psalm 34. It starts out like, so Psalm 34 starts out like this. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. And my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now we use that passage is a call to worship. It's such a lofty and such a beautiful praise of God uh, that there are, there are some people, I remember when I was in seminary, I think one of our professors was making the case that the, the headers to the Psalms were not inspired, could not have been inspired, were added later by scribes and by editors because how could such a, a Psalm that was so lofty and talking so much about the beauty of God been about David acting crazy in a prison in Gath. It just didn't make sense. But when you know the story, when you understand the story behind it, and that what David is saying is that God released me. God protected me and saw me through that. Then it makes total sense. Here's, the next, here's what David says a little bit uh, farther down, same, same Psalm 34. He says, When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Totally sounds like he just got released from jail. He was in this impossible situation awaiting death, praising God, praising God for his faithfulness, and, and crying out to the Lord to save him out of this trouble that he had gotten himself into by being stupid. 
And what's, here's what's stunning about this. There's this beautiful psalm with all these lofty uh, exaltations about God, but what it's really about, what David says it's really about, it's really about the time when God saved him out of something he did that was really dumb. <laughs> and that just blows my mind, you know? I mean, look, look I mean, we, we can be so quick, we can go so fast to look at the spiritual a- aspect of this, and there is a big spiritual aspect to this, that we can run right over this first meaning of it, that, that this is, I don't know about you, but when I do something really dumb, and I get into some kind of trouble for it, my reaction is, I deserve this. I totally brought this on myself, and I don't even think, I think God doesn't have any responsibility to save me out of this. I should get justice, and I'm getting it, and I'm just going to sit here and shut up until it's over. But even in this situation, it shows that even when we do something dumb, <laughs> even, when we do so, even when our foolishness lands us in trouble, God's protection is still over us. He's still giving his people grace instead of justice. Not just mercy, but giving David grace. This is really, this is a vindication of the trouble prayer. When we talk about the trouble prayer, oh God, if you get me out of this one, I promise. I mean, David doesn't like promise to like repay God or anything like that. I'm not, what I'm not saying is that if you ignore God your entire life, Give him no thought whatsoever until you get in trouble and then prayer, oh God, get me out of this one and I promise God may, who knows what God will do. But what this says is that for God's people, for those who God is committed to, that even when we're in the trouble that we've made ourselves, we can go to God and pray and cry out to him and he promises us protection through it just like, just like he did for David. And so this is really good news. I mean, putting those two things together. And this is what makes Christianity so different. Um, You know, have you done something really sinful that wrecked stuff? You know, I know I have. And maybe that's your situation. And you haven't been able to forgive yourself for it. Or you think that God is mad at you or you think that God has abandoned you because of it. What this says uh, is that God is providing for you even through the everyday sin of life. That that does not faze him. He came to save us because of our sins, not in spite of them. He came to save us because we were needy. Or maybe the second part, maybe you've done something really stupid that, and it wrecked things. And you just can't let yourself forget about it. What this tells us is that God can and will and does protect us and will deliver us even from those things because he loves us. He's a father. My kids do something stupid. They do something stupid all the time, wreck stuff. (laughs) I don't cut them off. I'm still their father. They're still my children. I still love them. And I guide them through that but it doesn't affect my love or care for them in any way. In fact, it makes it more so. And that's how God deals with us. So now we can make the jump. Now we can make the jump to the spiritual meaning behind this text. If God 
cares so much about us and he is caring so much about us that he's delivering us and promises to deliver us and see us through all these small hardships in life. And it means that he can deliver us from the big things. It means that Jesus, he can deliver us from the wilderness of the fallen world. That's the third point. Look, Psalm 34 goes on, the psalm that David uses to explain uh, what happened and his, why he was delivered from that awful situation in that prison in Gath. Uh, right, after he, right after he says, you know, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, the very next verse he goes on to say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones Not one of them is broken. And John, the Apostle John, uh, in in the Gospel of John, verse 19, he interprets that as a prophetic uh, prophecy about Jesus, that just as the Passover lamb in the the Israel ceremony of the Passover, the the lamb had to be perfect and, and spotless and without blemish, and there could not be any, you could not break any of the bones of the lamb. And this lamb was killed, the the blood was splattered on the doorposts of the Israeli house, and when the angel of death passed over, he saw the blood of the slaughtered lamb, and he passed over that house, death passed over that house. And what John is saying in this passage is that this is referring to Jesus, that on the cross, when the Roman centurion stabbed him in the side with a giant spear and did not break any bones, which is a really hard thing to do, That was a picture of Jesus being our Passover lamb, that his blood is what is causing the angel of death to pass over us so that we have life. This is a picture of Jesus. And so really Psalm 34 stepped up a level is the whole story. It's a picture of Jesus delivering us from the wilderness of this fallen world. And here is where in this passage it comes out loud and clear. It's the best part of the story. This is, uh, look at verse 22, or chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. I love this verse. I love this verse. You're going to love this verse. And so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him because they were afraid Saul was going to kill David's whole family. They're on the run now too. They had to leave everything behind. Here's the part I love. And then everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became a commander over them and they were with him about 400 men. Uh, distress means dis- people who were in dire straits, people who were in serious hardship of life people who were suffering through the emotional anguish of failure and and hardship and loss and deprivation. Uh, In debt is really literally every man that had a creditor. It really means everybody who was in financial hardship and distress. Uh, And bitter in soul really talks about everyone who had become discontent and disillusioned with the, prom- the empty promises of the world, uh, and we're just and we're wanting something better. It's the same phrase that's used for Hannah, the, the mother of Samuel, when she went and prayed before the Lord, and she was bitter in soul. 
so desperate by the hardships that she had experienced in life and had finally come to the place where she went to God and said, any blessings that you bless me with, I'll give back to you. And she got a son, gave her son back to the Lord. And that's why, I mean, I love that passage. Because I have a friend, one of our, my friend Joel Fitzpatrick, part of the church, he said to me a long time ago, Res Prez is like the island of misfit toys. Which is from, it's from this, like, one of those weird, like, animation Christmas movies that used to, like, really freak me out when I was a kid. <laughs> like, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or something like that, you know? The Burl Ives narrating it. I don't even know if they still play those things anymore. But there's one of these episodes, there's this island of misfit toys. There's, like, teddy bears with spots. There's a jack, <laughs> there's a jack-in-the-box named Charlie. <laughs> If you read it, if you read the passage, it's all these toys that are just like, just kind of broken in some way. And they all come to this island of misfit toys where they belong together, right? Um, we talk about one of our goals for this church is to be a city of refuge. Meaning that we want to, as a, as a, as a, as a, um, a we want to be a place where we are um, that we are able to reach out and bring in people who have been hurt by the world, who have chased after those promises and gotten wrecked by them, or who have just come to the end of them and, and, and are so disillusioned that they have really they don't know what's what what's next, which was my story. Uh, we want to be a place where people who have been hurt by the church can come and hear about God's intense love for us and the real reason behind our salvation. And so, man, I mean, is that you? Are you a misfit? Are you in distress? Are you in financial hardship? Are you experiencing, are you suffering from the anguish of hardship and trouble in the world? Do you feel it? Can you feel the the effects of the fall pressing in on you? Have you chased down uh, all the things that the world and our culture says are going to make you happy and satisfied and found them wanting? If that's true, if that describes you, then Jesus says you are blessed. He says you are blessed because you are able to see through the smoke and mirrors. He says you are blessed because you are able to see what truly brings refreshment. You are then in a prime position to receive and understand and benefit from the bread of life. If that describes you, you are exactly the kind of person that God is looking for. Last week we talked about God is saving the, the lame and the outcast in that beautiful passage uh, from Zephaniah. Same thing here. The apostles We're all a bunch of misfits, fishermen, outcasts, tax collectors, uh, uh, zealots, a guy who was a terrorist, basically. And that is what David is doing here. He is becoming a beacon for everyone who has suffered loss, who has experienced deprivation, for everyone who is discontented with the world and its version of the good life, for everyone who's been mistreated, for everyone who's been hurt, who, for everyone who's been hurt by the world, by the church, who is disenfranchised, who are disaffected, disasters, 
who are looking for something better. David is the beacon of that. And it's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is a beacon for all of us. The, the Bible calls, it's one of the names for the Lord, the Lord our banner, which is a picture of like a military banner. The military would line up and they'd put these massive flags up that would be just flowing in the wind. If you ever watch, if, you watch, if you're into Japanese uh, samurai movies like I am, there's these pictures of banners when these armies are on hillsides with the wind and these banners flying. That's a picture of Jesus. He's standing on a hill with his banner up, calling in all of these people who have been disaffected, who are distressed, who are in anguish, who are in financial hardship, who are in crisis, who are just over the empty promises of the world and are desperate for a better world. And that is what Jesus is promising us. That's our hope. Not money, not fame, not a better job, not anything or empty that this world can promise, but then ends up sucking the life out of us and leaving us empty. Jesus is promising us and is giving us through his intense love as he protects us and provides for us through the wilderness of this fallen world. He is standing as a beacon and as a banner leading us into the next to the promised world. And that's, that's our hope. That's what Christ gives for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. Uh, it is overwhelming to us the intensity of your love. Father, we have minds uh, and hearts that are twisted towards wanting strict justice. We want to be the winners. We want to be uh, lauded. We want to be applauded. And we want to think that we are strong. But the reality is, in life, we don't need just mercy. We need grace. We need you to accomplish salvation for us and to give it to us, Lord. And that's what you've done. Jesus took our justice so that he could give us the mercy of your love. And so we get what we don't deserve. Jesus got what he didn't deserve so that he could give us the glory of heaven that we did it. And you did it because you loved us so much. You went through all of that, Lord. You knew every one of our sins, future, sins we haven't even done yet, before you went to the cross, you still did it for us. You still sent your Holy Spirit to illuminate, to, to regenerate us, to bring us into your church. And you are now in your fatherly kindness and love, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our foolishness. You are guiding us in, in your love. You're growing us into the image of Christ and leading us into the perfect world to come. And so we can't thank you enough, Lord. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.